Her Excellency Sarah Al-Amiri and the UAE's exciting new mission to the asteroid belt this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, back from vacation with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Sarah last visited Planetary Radio after the launch of the Emirates-Mars mission that is now orbiting the Red Planet. With hopes for hope fulfilled, the United Arab Emirates are taking on an even more ambitious mission. Sarah, who now leads the UAE Space Agency, will tell us about it and provide an update on the science underway above Mars. Of course, Bruce Betts will also be here with winners of two space trivia contests and a couple of great random space facts. Scary kitties, that's the Halloween-inspired image of Jupiter's great red spot that tops the October 29 edition of our free newsletter, The Downlink. Think that's scary? Imagine living on a world that circles a black hole or neutron star, as that object vacuums matter from another star. Yeah, it's another exoplanet discovery, but this one stands out for yet another reason. It is 28 million light-years away in the Whirlpool Galaxy. There's an artist's impression at planetary.org slash downlink. We've also got the announcement by Blue Origin, Sierra Space, and other partners of their plan to build a commercial space station. They want to call it Orbital Reef. By the way, as this week's episode is published, SpaceX and NASA have further delayed the launch of four astronauts to the International Space Station. It's due to what's called a minor health problem suffered by one of the crew. Her Excellency Sarah Bint Youssef Alamiri is the United Arab Emirates Minister of State for Advanced Technology. She is also now chairwoman of that nation's space agency, the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center, also chairwoman of the Emirates Scientist Council, and chairwoman of the UAE Council for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and chairwoman of the Dubai Future Academy Board of Trustees. So it may not be surprising that this aerospace engineer and computer scientist was named a 2020 laureate in the BBC's 100 Women series, or that she was named by Time magazine as a 2021 Time 100 Next honoree. And I wasn't surprised when she was part of the announcement made on October 5th of a mission that will explore seven asteroids in the main belt between Mars and Jupiter. She joined me a few days ago from the UAE. Sarah, welcome back to Planetary Radio. It is a great honor to uh, have you back with us on our show to talk about something very, very ambitious. My goodness, it has been less than a, a year and a half since the Emirates-Mars mission, the Hope Probe, was launched. I wonder if you caught some people by surprise by the announcement of this even more ambitious new mission when it was made less than a month ago. I hope we didn't. I think it was a natural continuation on our exploration mission and on our advent to develop our science and technology sector overall with a focus on space. Is there a name for this new mission to the main asteroid belt? Not at the moment. We're calling it the mission to the asteroid belt. <laughs> um, as we move forward and get a better understanding of the mission concept, the science that we'll be doing, the objectives, um, I believe a name will come to fruition from there. I'm sure it will. Here's a portion of what you said when this new mission was announced. As we speak, still less than month a month ago, 
This requires leaps in imagination, in faith, and the pursuit of goals that go beyond prudent or methodical. That implies that this mission will be quite a bit more of a challenge than putting hope in orbit around Mars. Is that how you see it? Yes, um, it was naturally selected from several missions that were in the concept phase because of the challenge that it poses. It uses enough of our knowledge from the Emirates Mars mission while still putting us in a good, uncomfortable place to develop more <laughs> uh, capabilities. And the science is quite challenging. The scientific mission is five years. We're technically roaming around the solar system Yes, uh, to, be, to be able to fly by the seven asteroids. There is a nice gravity assist by Venus where we'll be doing some observations there. So overall, it's a, it was a nice sweet spot for challenges versus scientific impact versus technological advancement. Won't you also be doing a flyby of Earth, a little gravity assist uh, at our home world as well? Yes, absolutely. So that will be the second flyby that we're going by. And it's just, it was very interesting for us to go from going on a direct line from Earth to Mars to going from Earth to Venus, I think back to Earth again, to the asteroid belt a few times over, uh, visiting seven asteroids. Uh, we're really excited now as we're working on the science objectives to uh, learn more about the wonders of the asteroids in our solar system. And we have a lot to learn. Our, our audience heard us recently talking with the leaders of the Lucy mission, which, as you know, is on its way to explore those asteroids that share Jupiter's orbit, the so-called Trojan asteroids. But I don't think that there has been a mission yet that is going to visit seven, count them, seven main belt asteroids, all with one spacecraft. That really is ambitious. That is ambitious, but it's very important to understand asteroids more closely and the asteroid belt more closely, not only to get an a better understanding of the formation of planets within our solar system, but to also better understand the role that the asteroid belt will play in the future of exploration. We talk a lot on the show about how asteroids may be able to tell us more about the origin, about how we came to be in this in this solar system, and it looks like that is very much one of your goals. Absolutely, and and we're delving now into the details. Considering when we're launching in 2028, it's the right time that will allow us to be complementary to the Lucy mission, complementary to other missions that are going to different asteroids. We're building our requirements around that to ensure that we are meeting a sweet spot when it comes to data, very similar to the approach that we took on the Emirates Mars mission. I recognize that you're, this is still in the very early uh, days of this, this mission. When do you think we may know more about your science goals and about the instruments that, uh, that this new uh, spacecraft will carry? Considering the pace that we're going through at the moment, uh, the first half of next year is looking very promising for us to get a better understanding of the science objectives and also the instrumentation that will be on board uh, and a potential for having also technology demonstrators on board the spacecraft. We haven't yet talked about the thrilling finish that you have planned for this mission. Could you do that now? Yes, the seventh asteroid, we will be attempting a landing on it. Uh, we are looking at different mechanisms to land on asteroids. And one of the underlying aspects, and, and you mentioned that the asteroid belt remains largely uncharted. Uh, we've studied asteroids from Earth or from 
from Earth-based telescopes and also from space-based telescopes, uh, with very few missions that have studied perhaps a few asteroids up close. What you see in the images that comes from telescopes is, go is vastly different from what you're going to see up close to these asteroids. And better understanding how to study those asteroids also lies on how you would develop different landing mechanisms on, mm. on them, considering how difficult it is and how hard it is to, to build a mission that will go to, to, to an asteroid where you might have, for example, boulders lying around and it will affect your mechanism of landing. That, for me, is an interesting part of this mission where you're able to demonstrate a form of technology to enable landing on asteroids. We have learned just in the last couple of years just how challenging it can be to land on an asteroid. Or I, I imagine that you're very glad to have be able to learn from those experiences. Yes, and we've actually looked at those experiences and various other experiences and concepts of landing on asteroids to be able to better determine what is the right mechanism to do it from our end. So. We will continue exploration. I, I don't think we'll be the only mission that will be doing this, but perhaps we can add on uh, to our understanding. Either it's it's a success or a challenge that comes to be on how to uh, land on an asteroid and conduct uh, scientific um, observations while doing that. You're going to be partnering once again, I read, uh, with uh, those folks at LASP, the Laboratory for Atmospheric Science and Physics at the University of Colorado Boulder. I guess that's I guess that's evidence of how successful this partnership has been so far. Yes, it is. It's it's an evidence of how successful a U.S.-UAE partnership has come to be and an international partnership in space exploration. That's not necessarily your typical agency-to-agency -agency partnership. Uh, we'll continue on this partnership because largely this leverages quite, quite a lot on knowledge that has been developed from the Emirates-Mars mission, some designs that have been developed on the Emirates-Mars mission. So we're leveraging mm. on the overall EMM team to be able to successfully achieve this mission. We talked in July of last year about how the Emirates-Mars mission would fulfill its mission of hope, which is largely drove this that mission. And I'm wondering if you have the same goal for this new mission. We're at a different place as a region um, than we were with the Emirates-Mars mission. I believe the region is a slightly more stable than it was when we started mm. with the Emirates-Mars mission in 2000, late 2013. And there's a better understanding on the role that science and technology plays in creating opportunities. Space and just the arrival of Mars has brought the region together uh, in February of this year. And we're seeing more and more interest from the region, more and more players entering into it, creating those necessary opportunities. So hope created the necessary impact that it was going to create. What this is going to provide for us as a region is a, a second entry point into the global space sector um, with the space industry. And this is something that is underlying this mission as one of the objectives is creating space capabilities within the private sector in the country to be able to feed into uh, the overall region. If we turn now to HOPE, the Emirates-Mars mission, can you give us an idea of the current status of, uh, of the spacecraft and the science that it's doing? So the spacecraft is operating nominally um, around Mars, collecting the necessary scientific data that we require to be able to get that full picture of the 
weather system of Mars and also give us a better understanding of atmospheric escape. We've gotten two interesting observations that we will continue to observe that will eventually lead to good scientific findings and a better bettering our understanding of the atmosphere of Mars. The first is the observations of the discrete auroras, which we actually didn't expect. We didn't design our, our instrument to, to observe it per se. It wasn't within our science objectives, but we are getting it uh, with our current observation mechanisms. And that that's interesting to understand how that evolves um, throughout a Martian year, throughout the seasons of Mars. The second is an observation that our science team thought at the very beginning that it was a glitch in the instrument, and that's uh, higher than expected levels of uh, oxygen in mm. the upper atmosphere of Mars. Uh, and that continues to be interesting because the models don't indicate those levels of, of oxygen. Of course, that's not a drastic amount. A lot of people ask us, so can we breathe on Mars? No, <laughs> Mars is still primarily made up of carbon dioxide. We cannot breathe on Mars it's in comparison minute differences, but it's significant when you look at the um, actual bo- volume of um, oxygen that's meant to that that we theorize to be in the atmosphere. So that's an interesting observation that the science team continues to look at. Thankfully, our instrument was not glitching. Here's another question that has only just occurred to me. Uh, we know that periodically, semi-regularly, we see these planet-wide dust storms on Mars. And while they may not be something to look forward to if you're a rover, I wonder if uh, a mission like EMM, like HOPE, you might actually kind of be hoping for that so that we could maybe gain some understanding of what causes these gigantic storms. We're really hoping for a global dust storm. Uh, we're, we're sorry to the rover teams that are out there, but we're very well positioned to fit in vital gaps of knowledge. The last global global dust storm actually proved the need for the Emirates Mars mission and the whole probe around Mars. Uh, so we're really hoping, fingers crossed, that we get a global dust storm on Mars so we're able to monitor it comprehensively. And generating hope and uh, cause for inspiration. I wonder about how that element of the HOPE mission in particular uh, has continued to provide these sources of inspiration, especially for young people uh, in in the Middle East and, and specifically in the UAE. Quite extensively, especially in, it, it was very palpable in February when we arrived uh, to Mars uh, and continues to be so. In a form of way this mission has normalized, talking about science, technology, exploration, research, things that weren't very well understood just a year ago Hmm. uh, became normal dialogue that you hear people talking about. Um, Exploration features quite extensively right now in in the words that you see children speaking about, their aspirations. They want to be astronauts. They want to be physicists, uh, scientists. Um, some people want to be space chefs, <laughs> and and it's created quite a large impact and influence on the overall, on an entire generation within the country. A moment for me that was very interesting and, and quite heartwarming was when I saw families from several generations speaking about science, talking about what kind of science the Emirates Mars mission is going to do. It's just, it's created quite a large shift that is very hard for me to describe hmm. in terms of inspiration and and what it's uh, what it's created in terms of impact 
but it somewhat made my job easier in terms of of bringing that full understanding of what impact space creates, what impact technology creates, why it's important for the country, why it's important for our future. Looking forward to future conversations, though, Matt. Absolutely, always. Thank you so much once again. Thank you, Matt. Sarah Alamiri chairs the United Arab Emirates Space Agency and is the UAE Minister of State for Advanced Technology, among other things. Want to hear our complete conversation? It's waiting for you at planetary.org radio and elsewhere across the web. You'll also learn how to help the Planetary Society select the best of everything in space for 2021. We need your votes, and we also need you to stick around for What's Up with Bruce. From missions arriving at Mars to new frontiers in human spaceflight, 2021 has been an exciting year for space science and exploration. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. What were your favorite moments? You can cast your vote right now at planetary.org slash best of 2021 and help choose the year's best space images, mission milestones, memes, and more. That's planetary.org slash best of 2021. Thanks. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. I am here with the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. That's Bruce Betts. Did you miss me while I was on vacation? Oh, I missed you so much, Matt. There was a hole in my heart. Life wasn't the same. No, seriously, you were gone? (laughs) Well, not so the audience would notice, at least although I did say it during the show. Hey, thank you, everybody who sent me such nice uh, vacation wishes. Uh, it really was a, a wonderful, wonderful vacation. I don't know whether on your vacation or otherwise you've noticed, Matt, but Venus, stupid bright over yeah. in the West in the early evening. Very cool. And what's exciting is we've got the other bright object, Jupiter, as well as its friend to the lower right, Saturn. Remember, they used to be in the technically the other part of the sky. Well, now they'll be getting closer and closer over the next month or so to Venus in this nice planet lineup. So go from Venus, look to the upper left, you'll see Saturn looking dimmer and yellowish, and then bright Jupiter, and they're just going to get closer and it's going to be cool. But wait, don't order yet. I've also lined up a crescent moon to go hang out with Venus on the 7th of November and with Jupiter on the 11th, Saturn in between. Uh, If you don't like your planet viewing to be easy, then look in the pre-dawn. In the pre-dawn east, you have a challenge. We'll need a very low view to the horizon, but Mercury's there and Mars starting to make its its approach in the the pre-dawn sky. They'll actually be very close to each other on the 10th, but very low to the horizon in the eastern direction. Uh, that's, That's my exciting planet news for you, Matt. Venus was a a constant uh, friend over our vacation, and uh, it's still up there. It just keeps hanging on. Yeah, weird. So anyway, we move on to this week in space history. It was uh, 2013 that the India's Mars Orbiter mission launched, MOM. 
produced some beautiful pictures and other data from Mars. Now we move on to random space fact. Neutron stars, Matt, they're weird. They're small, despite having 1.4 solar masses in each one. They're only about 10 kilometers in diameter, which means, I know you were wondering this, you could fit over 250 million neutron stars inside the volume of the Earth. Wow. Ignoring what would happen if you did that. But yeah, it's weird. They're weird things. I'm not going to remember the exact equivalent, but I know it's like I read somewhere. It's like one teaspoonful of a neutron star material would weigh, I don't know how much it was. It's it's mind-boggling. Well, well. The, the standard random space fact that I'm sure I used years ago, which is why I didn't do it, is that a teaspoon of neutron star weighs about the same as all of humanity. Ah, so there you go. You squished us all into a <laughs> teaspoon. Ow. Bonus random space fact. Bonus RSF, and I am so glad to hear it. It's a, Now I know I'm back home. Oh, welcome. <sighs> okay, we move on to the trivia contest. We have two, two, not one, but two trivia contests to answer for you. In the first one, I asked you what major political event in the USSR happened during the 24-hour-long Voskhod 1 mission. What happened, Matt? Well, I'll tell you what happened. We got a huge response. I don't know why. Just a lot of fans of uh, the Soviet Union out there, I guess, the former Soviet <laughs> Union. Uh, this was this question was posed in our October 6th program. And here is the answer hidden in the verse from uh, Dave Fairchild, our poet laureate in Kansas. The Voskhod spacecraft went to space in 1964. It had three suitless cosmonauts all rather cramped on board, though only gone a day and change. When they came back, they found that Khrushchev had been eased aside by Brezhnev on the ground. Nikita Khrushchev, bye. Yep, Brezhnev took over during that 24 hours, and uh, as people may have mentioned, I guess his first public event as leader was welcoming the cosmonauts back. Fascinating. You got to wonder what was going through those astronauts' uh, minds when this happened. We heard from several other people that uh, it was later that a crew on the Mir space station uh, went up, left the Soviet Union, and came back to the Russian Republic. <laughs> Even bigger change, I guess. Uh, here's a big change. Kay Gilbert, who has been listening for a long, long time from Southern California, I believe this is her first time win. Congratulations, Kay. She said, yep, it was uh, Khrushchev who uh, got knocked out of power by Elena Brezhnev with some help from uh, Alexei Kosygin, I believe. So, Kay, we're going to send you that rubber asteroid. I can do better. I'm out of practice. Rubber asteroid. Uh, kick asteroid. There you go. From the Planetary Society. We're ready for the next one. This was the uh, question that you asked in our, on October 13 in that episode. Yes, indeed you do. And uh, I asked it about a mission that when we recorded hadn't launched yet, but now has launched the Lucy mission. Most of the asteroids to be visited by Lucy are Trojan asteroids named after characters in Homer's Iliad. And I asked you, but what two objects to be visited by Lucy are named after real people? Tell us, Matt, how'd we do? Well, I won't, but Gene Lewin, another one of our regular uh, poetic uh, contributors, he's up in Washington. Here's the answer from Gene. 
When Lucy goes out for her stroll, she'll circle back to say hello, using Earth to assist her trip, but she's always on the go, dropping by Johansson's crib, sort of a dress rehearsal, then off to Jupiter's Trojan friends, a mythological dispersal, then past Eurybates' satellite, Keta is its name, honoring Enriqueta Basilio, who lit the 68 Olympic flame. Did, did he get that right? Yes, indeed he did. Indeed he did. Indeed he do. Indeed he, <laughs> never mind. Uh, yes, we have uh, Donald Johansson, named after the person who discovered the Lucy fossil in Ethiopia, and uh, Keta, a nickname for, as you just said, the track runner from Mexico that lit the cauldron in 1968, becoming the first woman to light the Olympic cauldron. Lucy, the uh, Australopithecine. That, of course, was uh, largely the uh, inspiration for the name of this mission, as we heard on this show just a few weeks ago. Uh, but a lot of people were not able to find uh, Keta. Yeah, that was, tri- that was tricky because it's, uh, it's a moon of another asteroid, so it doesn't, may not have popped to the forefront as easily. Yeah, pretty tiny, apparently. One person who did find it, our regular entrant, Daniel Kazard in the UK. Uh, and Daniel has not won in almost two years, uh, but he did win this time. So congratulations, Daniel, who also, did you get to see the the, the uh, cool little cartoon he sent us? It's a little, almost a poster, The, the Adventures of Percy and Ginny. I was very entertained. Yes, with uh, Martian rocks and the name for what... Uh the perception of what they looked like. Yes, there were very, some very funny answers. I think we'll put this image up on the show page if we can. So uh, you'll be able to find it there at planetary.org slash radio for this uh, this week's episode, the November 3rd episode. Uh, again, congratulations, Daniel. We are also going to send you a Planetary Society kick asteroid rubber Asteroid. So uh, congratulations to both of our winners today. We're now back on the regular schedule. What do you have for next time? Who was the first chimpanzee to orbit Earth? The first chimpanzee to orbit Earth. Go to planetary.org slash radio. Okay, they were supposed to be chimpanzees in the capsule that Bing Crosby and Bob Hope were brought up into space in, in the road movie. Uh, yeah, well, is- way to give away the answer. I mean, I guess that's where people are going to have to dig in to find. <laughs> that's still, I, 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 was, I saw it as a kid, and a lot of the humor is better suited for kids, but I still think of it as incredibly funny. There was an automatic banana feeding machine that goes haywire and is stuffing bananas in the faces of these two big stars. It was great fun. <laughs> <laughs> we, we should get an automatic banana machine or two. Oh, man, yeah, I'd love that, except that, I'm allergic to bananas. I'll watch you try it. I get twice as many. Oh, I didn't tell you that uh, you have until November 10th. That'd be Wednesday, 8 a.m., November 10th, to get us this answer. And now I, I have a special prize. I have a shirt that I got while we were passing through Maine from Blue Shift Aerospace. This is a little rocket company in Maine, on the coast of the state of Maine, in the, in what we call New England here, they are building uh, as green a rocket as you probably can find any place. And I was so intrigued by this company that I bought one of their shirts. And they have kindly volunteered to donate one to one of you. 
It's a very clever sort of a half sleeve uh, shirt that says Blue Shift Aerospace, fresh main rockets, <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to lobster, as most people say. Anyway, that shirt will uh, go to um, whoever gets it right and is chosen by random.org this time around. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky and think about what you need to do to not slip on a banana peel. Thank you. Good night. Yeah, but then you'll be denying so much enjoyment to the rest of us. Uh, He's Bruce Betts, (laughs) who brings us great enjoyment each week as the chief scientist of Planetary Society when he joins us for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members, who are all primates. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astro.